Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. On this week's programme, it's maps, prints, woodblocks and a photographic panorama of the Praia Grande at Macau, among other topics, as I join antiquarian Jonathan Wattis, who's marking 35 years at his Hollywood Road Gallery with his 35th annual exhibition of the Mapping of Asia, which begins with an exhibit from 1561 and goes through to a map of Lantau from 1984. The exhibition is on show until December the 23rd. As we take a look around, Jonathan shows me antique maps with original colour. Some were created by the famous Dutch Blau family. There's the Spice Islands and sea monsters. The Portuguese and the Spanish, meanwhile, preferred to keep their maps a secret. We'll be heading to Canton, to Macau, and ending up in Lantau, while listening about how the crew from Captain Cook's third voyage came to Macau and sold furs on their way home. Some of Jonathan's acquisitions he's just brought back to Hong Kong from a recent trip to Paris. Well, we picked up some really rather special things. We were very lucky to run into an, a number of colleagues, and one of them in particular who we used to do quite a lot of business with 20-odd years ago, but we hadn't seen him for 10 or 15 years, and he had uh, actually had one of the stands. But uh, in the early days, we could say that he was what we called in those days a runner, so if I'm going back to the 90s, it was sort of early before really the internet started going and he would run around Europe and find us all sorts of things and he would come <laughs> up to me in an antique fair in London and he'd say, Mr. Wattis, Mr. Wattis, I have a great thing for you to see. You must come and see my things. And I'd say, OK. Um, so we, off we went and would see all these things and we, we would always look forward to seeing him and find some treasures. Anyway, when we were at this fair and he actually had a stand, and he had all sorts of treasures and it was, we were delighted to see each other and we found all sorts of uh, things. So we, we were going to go with our hands in our pockets, but that didn't last long. <laughs> it never does, does it? No, it never does. <laughs> but, uh, but the thing, the good thing is that we, we found some beautiful things in very nice condition. Now tell me, one of the aspects of this 35th anniversary exhibition is the original colour. Yes, and that stemmed from us acquiring... Uh, within the last year, uh, a beautiful double sheet map of Asia. I will, can, may I show yeah, that to you? Course. So one of the areas in Paris that uh, we like to stay, and I particularly like, is uh, Rue de Seine, which is in the 6th arrondissement. It's just off uh, Boulevard Saint-Germain. And along Rue de Seine, there, there are many art galleries and print dealers, contemporary and historic. And one of the earliest maps I bought on the end of uh, Rue de Seine in the um, early 90s was this particular map, which is a double sheet map of Asia by Jayo, and it was published in 1674. Now, the 1674 map by Jayo was based on Nicolas Sanson, who was the father of French geography, and it's a very beautiful map. But Jayo reissued it on a number of occasions, and I think this one is 1692 edition. But what's interesting about it is the colour. You've got yellow, pink. Yellow, pink, uh, turquoise, and the cartouche are also beautifully yes. coloured. So I think what happens with the plate, or the, the two plates, because it's engraved on two plates, which then attached in the middle, went to Mortier in Amsterdam, who was a Dutch map maker, around 1700, who acquired the plates, I think, from Jayo. But then there was a particular genre of Dutch colouring, which was just starting of that period, which is what this is. So I think that he has printed from the Jayo plates before modifying them 
and putting his own template, whatever, within it. But the colouring was done by Dutch colourists around 1700. And this is my opinion, but I, I just think, and it's absolutely beautiful. So that was one of the reasons for, for starting this whole debate, because the debate on original colour is quite interesting. Maps were printed black and white, and they were coloured from the earliest days. The colour was always added by hand, like a watercolour or a gouache later. Is that right? That's yes. how they did the original colouring, on each individual map? Each individual map until the 19th century when printed colour comes in. So printed colouring starts really 1830s and like that, you know. So you're originally being printed in black and white and they would be using watercolour paints in order to paint them? A form of watercolour, gouache, which mm. had brighter colours. <laughs> One of the things about Paris, it was one of the great publishing uh, places in the 1600s. Because remember, the Jesuits were there, and the Jesuits published a lot on particularly China. So they're very interesting in, in terms of what you find in and around the areas. So with the maps that we bought at this time, we, we, we managed to sort of rejig the exhibition within a couple of weeks and put them up <laughs> yes, on the Yes, I was going to say, because yeah. of course, each year you yeah. have an anniversary mapping of Asia exhibition yes. with different themes within yes. that. And uh, this is your 35th anniversary yes. here at What Is Fine Art at the base of Old Bailey Street on the yes. corner with yes. Hollywood Road. So yes. congratulations on staying in the same place for 35 years. Thank you. And uh, subject for another programme, I'd like to take you along Hollywood Road sometime because it, that will be an ever-changing road and hear your memories of 35 years ago. Yes, no, I'd be, um, I'd be very happy to In the do late that. 80s, what was that, the late uh, 1980s, isn't yes, it? Yes, 88 we started, yeah. Yes. So you've got maps going back. So when we're looking at those, what we're seeing here is prints going back hundreds of years. Yes. So in terms of printing in Europe, there were various centres in the 16th century. Antwerp was very important. And, the, and some of the early maps we've got, the miniatures, were printed in Antwerp. And also Ortelius maps were printed in Antwerp. Antwerp was a major centre in the 1500s. It's where a, a number of print workshops were, but they were under the Spanish and Holland were all under the Spanish. And then it's changing, and then it becomes the Netherlands, Amsterdam, the Dutch East India Company. Yes. So in, in the early 1600s, so the Dutch are following the Portuguese out to the east, and the Dutch East India Company becomes this incredibly wealthy uh, organisation out of Amsterdam and Rotterdam. And the, the publishing of really beautiful maps starts because of the wealth and because, and then you get the artists, the engravers, and you get the wealth. And so there's this golden age of Dutch cartography. Another of your very rare, I think, uh, maps that we're just about to look at is the Spice Islands. So that yes. was part of the reason for the wealth. Yes. The, the Spice Islands uh, map we have over here is by uh, Jan Janssen, who was the son-in-law of uh, Jodicus Hondius, 
who was the, one of the early map makers in Amsterdam and Holland. And Hondius had done an early engraving of the Spice Islands, I think 1606, and then he ended up selling it to the Blau family in 1630. And they were the major ones, were they? And they became the major ones because they had the patronage of the Dutch East India Company. When that happened, Blau took Hondius's map and put their own imprint on it as Blau, but in fact Hondius had made it. And so, as a result of that, Janssen then produced another map of the uh, Spice Islands. And this so what is it. We're, yeah, so what we're looking at, if you can name a, a few of the Spice yes, Islands there. Yes, well, there's Ternate is the uh, famous one. Ternate, Tidoro, Machian, Bachian, and there would be modern name equivalents. But what is so beautiful about this map is all original, really bright colours. And then you've got all these different ships and monsters, yes. sea monsters and compass rows, and even the cartouche you know, has flanked by two dolphins. I mean, it's highly decorative. It's a real joy to um, look at. Where are we looking at those spice islands? Where, what would be the mainland below? Well, in those days, the islands were called Jilolo. It's one of the islands in Southeast Asia. And if you were to sail south from there and then east, you would eventually come to Bando, which is quite famous for its nutmeg, because that's a very good story in the spice. You know, everyone chasing spices in the late 16th century, the Portuguese and then the Dutch... The English got involved, but the Dutch really took over the spice trade in Southeast Asia. Which leads us to the next series of maps, which we brought back from the fair, which were um, the Blau maps. And I used to be able to get one or two occasionally, and this time we managed to get three. So we have the, the Qatar figure Asia by William Blau of 1630. So it started to be published in 1630 and then it was continued to be published into the 1650s. And look at all the illustrations around the side. Around this, it's called a Qatar figure because it's, it's got lots of figures around the side and these are pairs of figures of, uh, with costumes of Asian people oh. so depicted. And then at the top, it has the major cities in Asia according to the trade at that time or the view of the, the Blau family. But in the corner on the right is a vignette of Macau, which is, uh, of course, very important. So that's uh, a map that I, when I did my shows in the 90s in Macau, I'd try and find that map because, <laughs> you know, it, it resonated with this area, but it was also depicting Macau right in the early 17th century. Well, of course, I mean, when did the Portuguese come to Macau? I think it's about 1557. Mm. The imagery in the early days is so limited. There's so little you can see in the, in the 16th century, and it's only really in the 17th century that you start getting, in the early 17th century, you start getting these images. Oceanus, uh, Kinesis, or Chinesis, and then uh, Oceanus Occidentalis. Yes, Orientalis was east and Occidentalis was west, I think. And then you get Septentrionalis, I think it's north, and Australis is south. Because <laughs> right, right. the Terra Australis Incognito, oh. the unknown southern land, oh. which ended up being Australia, because they, they use the Latin names for these places. So, yeah. Gosh, you must have been very pleased. So at Paris, you managed to find three Blau's. And the other ones that we got were the Southeast Asia Blau, which is 1635, and the China, which <laughs> is also 1635, but all with beautiful original colour, and with title cartouche, also cartouche of 
the patronage of, in each of these, of the patronage of a director of the Dutch East India Company. So there's a line to the Dutch East India Company. And how accurate would they be? Well, for their time, the Southeast Asia one was the most accurate map of its time, but was that from 10 years before? You see, the Spanish never really published their maps, rarely, and the Portuguese virtually never, because they were all secrets. The maps were secrets. They were access to the, the treasure, and the great treasure, of course, in those days was the spices and uh, so the maps would be revealing secrets so rarely were they printed on time so this this particular map was only printed in in 1635 and then it was copied by other map makers so down here you will see a map of india orientalis southeast asia next to the blau which is a direct copy of that map which was published by Merian, who was a Swiss engraver, and it's absolutely beautiful, but the geography is identical. The map is about three-quarters of the size, and you get more monsters in this one, and more ships. <laughs> more monsters. Yeah, Actually, and that's later colour. If yeah. we look at the monsters, it was there be, there be dragons, the fear of the unknown, to a certain extent. Absolutely. But do the monsters change over the centuries? I think they probably do, but, I mean, if you get into the... Uh, the depiction someone's written a book on the monsters that appear oh, on maps really? yes <laughs> map monsters and uh, but uh, but a lot of them are rela relating to the sea because they're giant fish or they're kind of monstrous giant fish and some of them are quite terrifying i'm talking to jonathan Waters here at what is fine art so you can find the gallery at the bottom of old bailey street on the corner there with hollywood road and it's on the mapping of asia 1561 to 1984 so this is on show until saturday the 23rd of december what would you like to show next we can hop and jump because there's so many different stories here but if we go to the second exhibition within the exhibition macau and hong kong we first of all we've got hong kong macau and we have a little canton as well just to get the balance right <laughs> So we've, we have in the corner a, a small map of, uh, of Canton, which was published in England in 1747, and it's very beautiful. But this is later colour, and it's been coloured by a colourist, our colourist, who's now stopped colouring for five years. So end of an era, but her beautiful colouring. Mm -hmm. But it's depicting Canton in the early 1600s during a Dutch embassy and the secretary to the embassy was called Neuhoff and it was in the 1650s and his city plan of Canton was copied and copied and copied and it only really started in the in the mid 18th century when they started getting better information and, and be producing better city plans and this one over here which I love but it's very hard to read and so that's why I brightly lit yeah we've it, gone from we've gone from very bright colors to yes. this monocolor here yes so this monocolor it's it's printed in a, in a a kind of red, reddy orange colour, and it's a plan of the city of Canton. This is very interesting. It's relatively large, I mean, in, in image size, compared to the smaller ones, it's 46 by 69 centimetres, and it's a woodblock. Ah. And, it, and it appeared in the earliest guide to the treaty ports, 1866-67, published by Myers. And what's interesting was the maps that were in it were all done, I believe, in Hong Kong, and they were on indigenous Chinese paper. 
So the paper itself is very fragile. So they were done as wood blocks. And, uh, and when uh, you say, sorry, when you say indigenous Chinese paper, would yes. it have been made of? I don't know whether this might have been mulberry, but I mean, they're made with different plants. Mm -hmm. And so I always find paper totally fascinating and I always learn more <laughs> about the maps because of the paper yes. they're on. But the Chinese paintings and maps were done on different, there's a the paper called pith paper, which came from the pith plant and, and the mulberry paper, which came from the mulberry plant. So this one might have been on a mulberry. But it's, it's, it's quite fragile. It's very fragile. Mm -hmm. So this one had to be restored and laid down and backed to support it. You can see the folds on it. Yes. But it's, it's a beautifully printed map. And I think it was probably printed in this area where we are now. So Wellington Street, Queen's Road. The publisher of it was near here. So the artisans were working on this. And it's based on a Chinese map and possibly a Western map. But it's very Chinese in the way it's, it's done. And so it's the old city of Canton with the old walls and the hills around the most prominent buildings and it dates back to this, this one was 1866 printed in 1867 there's some uh, great descriptions you've got rice grounds rice gardens so temples Puting Bar's garden oh yes Shamian island is yeah, there yeah yeah so you've got site. the factory the old uh, factory, the old factory site. site yes yeah. if you took this map to Guangdong now yes would you be able to follow any of it? <laughs> No, for instance, in it, I mean, if you see the old pictures of the factories and the old waterfront, you'd get old paintings, things. Yeah. You'd have the Dutch Folly Fort and the French Folly Fort. So this one, the Dutch Folly Fort, is out, but I think it's been reclaimed now, so it's no longer out in the middle of the, the river. And the French Folly Fort is more or less where the railway station is. So or, if you had a woodblock, everything has to be... Engraved yes. in... Uh, reverse and then you're almost doing like the equivalent of a rubbing <laughs> yeah you are i mean yeah. you know and obviously the wood you can only print certain mount but this oh, yeah, is so it would have a certain lifetime wouldn't certain it? lifetime and i don't know whether any of these exist i've never come across no. any of these it's like the old copper plates very few of those exist because it's a resource they could use or reuse you know yeah are we going to macau now One of the earliest prints in Macau was done by Isaac Comelin in Holland in Amsterdam when he was publishing the accounts and history of the Dutch East India Company. And this one we bought in Paris, so this one went in, it's 1646. And it's engraving of what is the inner harbour. So you're looking from Lapa across to the inner harbour. But I love the spelling on this plate. M-A-C-A-V-W. Makov. <laughs> but it is beautiful with the, and it shows buildings. Look at those hills. Yeah. And you can probably work out a few of these. That's almost certainly St Paul's with its clock tower oh, yeah. before the fire, obviously. Yes. Very unusual to find that the Comelin. We've just gone from 1636 <laughs> and uh, jumping forward a little bit, but uh, we've got this panorama of the Praia Grande at Macau in 1868 and it's by William Pryor Floyd. Yes, th this is, in my view, the most beautiful early panorama. So this is a of, photograph, of and course. It's a, it's a four-print photographic panorama because there was no panoramic camera, so the photographer would have to take one 
and then another, so and then album another. And, album and, and these are album and prints. Yeah. They were printed as album and prints from glass plates, and they were put together. But it's pretty accurate the way he's been able to put them together. And this one is very special. It depicts the Praia Grande, and on one side you have trees at the edge of the harbour. The, the Praia Grande is the waterfront, and by the end of the trees, the Club Militaire would have been built in about 1870 so about two years after this and you look at the the beautiful colonial architecture and very few of these buildings on the front would survive but there were one or two landmarks there's say cathedral that is still there but way back from any waterfront so nearly everything of the water in the foreground with a few of the boats that's nearly all reclaimed land now no, it is superb. And what adds to it, I mean, you had to do quite a lot of or get quite a lot of restoration done on this particular panorama, which if you can imagine, yeah, you've got four album and prints so accurately put next to one another and all of these beautiful old prior buildings. These would have been factory buildings or... Uh, private residences yeah. and some of them were former East India Company yeah. buildings. I mean, I think the Pink Palace might be on this because I think that was built in the 1850s. The Pink, the Pink Palace? The Pink Palace was the Governor's Palace and it right. still is the Governor's Palace. Hey. And it's still a beautiful... So if you can imagine yourself walking around along the Praia Grande now and you look to the right, you'll see a Pink Palace in some gardens and it's just from another era and that would have been more or less on the waterfront in those days. Should we go to the Pink Palace next year? We will. <laughs> yeah, we shall. So William Pryor Floyd. So he's in Macau from about 66 to 67, has a business, suddenly there's a fire, he loses everything. What, so in 1867, around then? 1866-67. Then he comes to Hong Kong, works as an assistant in Queen's Road. So he works as an assistant photographer? Assistant photographer in a studio. The Silvera. Silvera. He works as an assistant with Silvera and Co. And it's possible that Ah Fong, the great Chinese photographer, also worked as an assistant there at the same time. There's all this stuff that goes on in in terms of the early photographers who were both very good. I mean, Ah Fong was great and, and Floyd. So he goes back there. And he takes this fantastic panorama, but he knows Macau. So this is somebody who, who'd been photographing Macau, and we don't know of any of his early work that still exists, but I'm sure some of it does still just exist, so it'd be nice to identify. But what's so great is to have the definitive date, so we know what day it was yeah. done. It's Panorama de Macau, Sheen, and it's the 3rd of May, 1868 so you've actually got the date is that when he took it or that is i believe that is a definitive date and that's why i got really excited when i found this panorama you know and i i know somebody who would love to have seen that carl smith the great historian and in his latter years when he lived in macau carl smith would have spent ages well he did spend ages years researching all the people who lived in each of these houses so he knew oh, wow. so much information because i know he did a lot of that on hong kong and he did a lot of that in hong kong and, and he and he went into so much detail and richard garrett who was a friend he continued the research and published a small book on it and so you get this information about people who lived in houses on the on the Praia grande in parts of very interesting stuff Captain Cook's voyages. Yeah, well, this is very interesting, Matt, because <laughs> on Cook's third voyage, yes. after he passed away, the ships came round 
having visited uh, Vancouver and Nooka, and they came back down the coast. After he passed away. Where was it? Uh, Hawaii, yes, mm. he was uh, killed. Killed by the Hawaiians. Yes, yes, he was. But the ships came back, and they came via Macau. And they did a bit of trading at first, but they also did a map. But what was very interesting was the map itself has the city and Macau, and it has uh, Taipa and Kolowan, and it has hydrographic soundings where the anchorage at Taipa was and the inner harbour anchorage and the outer harbour. So it's basically Captain Cook's ship or ships yes. coming round, heading back to Britain? Sh- yeah, heading back to Britain, right. and, but they came back via Macau. Oh. Um, and when they were here, various things happened, and among them was this map was produced. And it, it's possible the map was drawn by either Lieutenant Henry Roberts who produced many maps and charts on the voyage, or by William Bly, when he was master of HMS Resolution, and he was known to have surveyed Macau. The famous mutiny on the bounty was nearly 20 years later in, in, in Bly's career, but it was interesting, so early on, he had mapped Macau oh, as so a bit Bly, of colour. Bly would have been involved with the mutiny? Yeah, he was the captain of the ship, who was ah, sent packing okay, on right. the boat and had to sail it, had to row it all the way to, uh, well, Jakarta. Or, but here he yeah. is, drawing maps in Macau, perhaps? As a young man. Fascinating, <laughs> all of these connections. So this yes. is Captain Cook's Voyages, and yeah. uh, it's Macau, sketch of typo in Macau, and it dates back to 1779 or around then. Mm. Yeah, oh, I, I had no idea yeah. that uh, Cook, Captain Cook's uh, ship came round. Yes. So what was his ship called, or was there several of well, them? Well, there were several. One of them was the Resolution. The name of the other one, Discovery. So I'm going to do a jump to 1984. Oh my! <laughs> Let's have a look at this. This uh, was of interest to me because I live on an outlying island, although yes. not this one. Yes. So you've actually got a 1984, and it's incredible. So we're how many years? Uh, we're nearly 40 years here. Yes. But the changes on Lantau Island. Unbelievable. Well, 1984 is significant to me because I arrived in Hong Kong in August 1984. All right. So, uh, and I actually bought some maps. And I didn't buy this, and it's the first time I've had this. Now, I have to admit that I bought it, or we bought it online, yeah. and it was sold to me as 1970. <laughs> and, um, you know, the only reason I didn't send it back was because having looked at it and looked at it and looked at it, I found it totally fascinating. Yes. Um, if I told you, and it, we can't actually do it at this moment because it's stuck down, but if I told you, if you turned it over, yeah. it had in Chinese the highlights of the places to go and see, buildings in Lantau that were go- worth going to see. And then underneath it has the ferry timetable and it has the bus timetable. And then if you look in very small print, very small, very, 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 well, you find it says 1984. <laughs> so it wasn't 1970. <laughs> but if you look at the front... What's so interesting, because it's a Hong Kong published printed map on a scale of 1 to 35,000, and it has aspects that today are really important, and in those days were just either non-existent or in their infancy. So you have on the northeast, you have a little notation saying Discovery Bay Holiday Super Residential Area. Well, at this time, they were only just starting to, to build so it was early days. And what about Cheplapcock? Well, Cheplapcock is this rather grand island. It would have been very nice to visit. And it appears to have roads and trails, and you could walk up there. The Brothers Islands up there. And a West Brother, the East Brother, the Brothers. Yeah, well, they, they were flattened. So all of that became the airport. 
Where would Disneyland be on that? Oh, it would be above <laughs> Disco Bay. So if you can see Disco Bay, there's a thing called Ye Cook Camp Private. Well, that's quite close to Disneyland. It's in there somewhere, isn't it? So yes. you, you kind of access it quite close to that area of northern Disco Bay. And then you've got a close-up of Moy War. Yes, this is an inset of, I suppose, town, village of, uh, of Moi Wo. Yes. Um, yeah, that is interesting because, I mean, it's 40 years old. Um, but, yeah, as you say, there's been so many developments on Lantau that it's, it's become quite historic quite quickly. Very quickly. And what, what would you normally think being something you throw out becomes quite yeah. collectible yeah. because uh, yeah. not many still survive. I mean, it's even got some original sellotape on it, which we hate, but there we are. <laughs> Jonathan Watt is there. So much has changed on the island of Lantau over the past few decades. Jonathan and I were talking during the programme about the surviving entourage of Captain Cook's third voyage. They'd made an epic journey through the Pacific Ocean or Great South Sea. Captain Cook was killed in Hawaii on February the 14th, 1779, and the ship's discovery and resolution would later come via Macau as they made their journey back to England. On board was a young officer called William Bly. Ten years later, in 1789, Bly, who was known for having a bit of a temper, was captain of the ship, the Bounty, which was on a voyage to collect breadfruit. But his crew mutinied against him as they headed back from Tahiti. I'm also reading here that Bly first went to sea when he was just seven years old. My thanks to Jonathan Wattis there, always providing me with new knowledge. The 35th annual exhibition of the Mapping of Asia is on show at Wattis Fine Art until December the 23rd. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. The 2023 District Council Ordinary Election is on December 10th. Electors must vote at their allocated polling stations and show their ID cards for verification to collect the ballot. Those in need may use the special queue. Geographical constituency electors must stamp one tick on the ballot, flip it over, keep it unfolded, and put it into the ballot box. For District Committee's constituency, electors must use the black pen to fill in the ovals and check the ballot at their polling stations. Improving district administration and reforming district councils matter to the well-being of us all and are essential to the good governance of Hong Kong. Candidates who are patriotic and have an affection for Hong Kong and the community, please strive to win the valuable votes from the voters. Voters, please cast your vote on December 10th. Pick your preferred candidate. Let's build a nice and harmonious community together. Cast your vote at DC election on December 10th for a better community. On Radio 3 Book Club, Rashan Stone continues reading from Colson Whitehead's Harlem Shuffle, set in 1960s New York. Today, Freddie's story of the shocking confrontation with Linus's wealthy father continues, convincing Ray that it's high time to get rid of the briefcase. <laughs> Van Wyck the Elder stood in the doorway, 
in his pajamas. Linus's father was in his seventies, skinny, shriveled all over. But he had mean blue eyes, and Freddy remembered Linus's story about the time he'd said, Can I? instead of May I? And his father, Ambrose Van Wyck, took off his loafer and slapped him across the face with it seven times. Ambrose held a glass of milk. The sight of his son used to cause him pain, wincingly so, but that had been years before. He was at peace with his son's failure now. Gnaw on a disappointment long enough, and it will lose all flavor. Linus would never occupy Ambrose's corner office. His partner's sons were in place to steer Van Wyck Realty into the future, and with Ambrose's death, the firm would cease to be a Van Wyck concern. So be it. The man-child before him was a technicality. Ambrose Van Wyck regarded the structures as his true offspring. The skyscraping pillars, bustling office hives, global HQs. When he looked out of the dining-room window onto Park Avenue and beyond, he recognized his own features in the white brick apartment houses and silver deco steeples, found his face returned to him in the pitiless steel and concrete of the city. This man before him? A stranger he might come across on the subway, if he took the subway, which he didn't. It was a filthy cage for filthy people. As for his son's companion, Ambrose had lived in this apartment his whole life, and in all his seventy-five years, as far as he knew, this was the first time a negro had set foot in it. "'You're here,' Linus said. "'When I heard we were sitting with the Laphams, I was staying home, of course.' This was some blue-blood vendetta shit, Linus explained later. His mother had had an affair with the husband, or his father had had an affair with the wife. Perhaps both. "'I thought I heard something,' Ambrose Van Wyck said. "'I'm too tired to deal with your foolishness right now. Put that back, and wait in your room until your mother gets home.' Linus hesitated, then closed the safe. "'We're leaving,' he said. "'There are things a parent can utter to a child,' that should not be heard by others. Verdicts and spiky assessments, pettiness masquerading as principle and magnified by time, grudges that have taken root in the bones. A witness can render these things indelible and real in a way that they wouldn't be if there were no one else around. No, it's best not to hear your grown friend talk to the way Ambrose Van Wyck addressed his son. In two minutes, Freddy was five years old again, cowering under the kitchen table as his father enumerated his mother's shortcomings with sadistic flair. A specific reference compelled Linus to lunge. The glass of milk fell to the carpet. It would not be accurate to say that the two men fought or wrestled, more like they gripped each other's upper arms and shook. It was a low-key battle, a mutual trembling. Freddy crept past them into the hallway. In a limp rush, Linus overcame his reticence, pushed, and the old man tumbled into a large red leather club chair, panting. At 9.41 p.m., Linus and Freddy ran down the back stairs. At no point did Ambrose Van Wyck acknowledge Freddy's presence. In the original plan, 
Linus's family wouldn't have known of the theft until the next day at the earliest. Now the head start was gone. They packed up some clothes at the 99th Street apartment. Where to? Linus asked. Freddy thought of the Eagleton first thing. It was a natural place to lamb it. Freddy got the bed. Linus slept on the floor with the briefcase. I wasn't going to get you involved, but Linus said it was the best play. Freddy smiled reluctantly. He liked you, Ray. Whenever I complained about some shit you said to me, he'd say you was only looking out for me and that he wished he had someone like that. Freddy got choked up. Handing off the briefcase to Carney improved their moods. For breakfast Sunday morning, Freddy had gone out to the Greek place, gone long enough for Linus to OD. Do you think it was an accident? I mean, you stirred somebody up. No one would do that to Linus. I don't know what to do, Freddy said. You have to split. It'll take money. Freddy nodded to the safe. It'll take that. The emerald. I got it, Carney said. He needed help, however. He needed Pepper. Pepper folded his newspaper and laid it flat when Carney appeared in Donegal's doorway. He nodded at the bartender, who shambled to the other end of the bar by the street. Carney gestured to the stool. Pepper granted his permission. He hadn't changed his uniform. The faded dungarees might have been the same pair he wore the first time they met, after the Teresa, a dark speck of Miami Joe's blood on the hem. What do you want? Trying to sell me a couch? Carney gave Pepper the rundown, from Freddy's friendship with Linus and his rich family to the interrupted robbery and everything that happened after it. Pepper scratched his neck. Using the riots, he said. If I had something cooking, I would have done the same thing. Everybody running around like chickens with their heads cut off. You can pull a job. People weren't acting crazy over nothing. They had good reason, Carney said. Since when do white people care about reason? They gonna put that cop in jail? The bartender looked up. Put a white cop in jail for killing the black boy? Believe in the tooth fairy. I'd like to hire you for security, Carney said, in case anyone else comes knocking. Sound like someone might, Pepper said. Look, you don't want my advice, but cut him loose. He's a loser. It's already done. It's not done. He's splitting. Trouble will find him again. Your father would say, screw him, even if he is family, even if it was you. That's why, Carney said. Pepper grimaced and gestured for another beer. What are you going to do with the loot? The necklace? Who are you going to lay it off on? I have a guy who can handle it. He took the questions to mean that Pepper was in. Carney mentioned a figure. Pepper said he had a mind for something from the store. Whatever you need. A couch? That flips back when you put your feet up with a lever. A recliner? That's it. A recliner. They did a deal for the security and miscellaneous manhandling. 
Carney handed Pepper the keys to the furniture store. The image of Pepper sitting at his desk made him chuckle. You'll take the match in Ottoman and damn well like it. You got your boy on ice somewhere? Pepper asked. Out in Brooklyn, Carney said. I don't want him underfoot. Carney was headed for the subway, down to Moskowitz's store in the Uptown Diamond District. The emerald in his leather satchel made him suspect everybody on the street had X-ray vision. Moskowitz's was busy. Carney passed four customers as he went up the stairs. The jeweler stood at the window, taking in the manic boil of 47th Street. He let down the blinds and greeted Carney with his usual reserve. It's a lot this time, Carney said. I gathered, Moskowitz said. Your uptown associates getting ambitious? Carney didn't like the tone. He opened the satchel and set the Van Wyck necklace on Moskowitz's desk blotter next to the overflowing ashtray. The jeweler withdrew. Put it away, Moskowitz said. What? I had to see it, but I don't want to look at it. You know why. Carney returned the necklace to the leather satchel. Oh, it's too hot. Moskowitz said. People are inquiring. You must know that. I couldn't move that five feet. You had a visit? Anybody who can move that knows not to touch it. Toss it in the East River and don't look back. That's it, Carney said. It's best you don't come back. It had gotten hotter outside. Carney wiped his neck with his handkerchief. Moskowitz. He'd been threatened. At the corner of 7th Avenue, Carney heard his name. If you have a minute, Mr. Carney. The man was tall and thin with sharp features. Carney thought of museum statues cut from cold white stones. This guy looked like he relaxed at home with a chalice and one of those laurel wreath crowns around his head. He shook Carney's hand as if they'd been doing business for years. The name's Bench. Ed Bench. I'm with the law firm of Newman, Shears, and Whipple. He gave Carney his card. Heavy stock, dignified typeface. Carney said he didn't understand. I represent the Van Wyck family. He tilted his head. I'm here with Mr. Lloyd. Presenting Mr. Lloyd, the muscle, neck, and head, a solid column atop his barrel chest. The man's right hand was in his jacket pocket, pointing a revolver at Carney. Let's walk. How's your cousin, Carney? Ed Bench said. I haven't seen him. That's unlikely. We hear you're like brothers. Can I have that, please? Mr. Lloyd coughed for emphasis. Carney handed over his satchel. Ed Bench performed a quick look-see for confirmation. He said, The rest? But that's it. If somebody's saying something else, they're wrong. The other items. I'm referring to the other items. Carney tried to get a handle on what was happening. This Van Wyck lawyer was more concerned with the other things Linus had swiped from the family safe. Carney had been so distracted by the fact of the emerald, he hadn't gone over the papers thoroughly. I don't have them. Carney. Ed Bench said. Mr. Lloyd jabbed the nose of the pistol into Carney's back. 
The lawyer showed his teeth. Have you considered what will happen? To you? Your family? Moskowitz had tipped off the Van Wicks and sold Carney down the river. Moskowitz, the old gentleman, the professor, was the one who ratted him out in the end. Screw this. Ed Bench said, Hey! Carney ran. He ran as if Freddy had stolen a comic book from Mason's display racks, and old man Mason himself pursued them down Lennox with a machete. He ran as if he and his cousin had dropped a fistful of firecrackers into the aluminum garbage cans and rattled the whole street. He ran like a kid convinced that the whole grown-up world with its entire grown-up might was going to beat him silly. He shook Ed Bench and Mr. Lloyd after two blocks and kept going another ten, although not as fast, trotting some, for he was out of shape. The necklace was gone, like that. Yes, you can have all sorts of craziness in your head, and people will sit right next to you on the train as if you're a normal person. He felt safe on the train, all the way up, until he got to the store and saw Pepper. Rashan Stone was reading from Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead. Tune in to Radio 3 Book Club at 6.45 next Sunday evening for the 10th episode. Mm -hmm.